Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. Um, If you were to be asked, what is goodness, what might you say? If you were to be asked, "What what is goodness, what might you say? My guess is you would answer with something like, it's, it's care, it's compassion, love, service, mercy, maybe, maybe words like that. If I was to ask you who are the good or, or maybe the, the best people in the world, what might you say? Who, who are the, the, the good or maybe the best people in the world? Uh, if you do a quick Google, you get... An image like this at one point, when in to answer this question, what is what is goodness and who are the good people? My slides are taking a long time to come up. You might go to the next one there. Thanks, Mark. You might think of, of Mother Teresa, maybe uh, late Queen Elizabeth. Maybe you think of, of Bill Gates because of his twenty-seven billion dollars uh, in in generosity and giving, um, or someone like him. Who are the the good people? We think of goodness in these terms, don't we? We think of generosity, we think of compassion, we think of charity. And the question is, why do we think that's goodness? How have we got to a place in our society that we think charity, care, compassion is goodness? How would the ancients have answered that question? How would the ancients have answered that question? A Roman, for instance, or someone from a Greek background, a Babylonian, an Egyptian, a Canaanite, how might they have answered, what is goodness? Now, we can't for certain know how every individual would have answered that question, but maybe they would have, on the whole, answered with things like, it's an increase in power, or being successful through military might, or maximising enjoyment for self, or doing what appeases the emperor, the gods, doing what promotes life. And as we hear that, we think, well, that's how we define goodness too. But they would have thought of promoting life as not promoting an individual's life necessarily, but promoting the species, promoting the empire particularly. Doing that is good, whatever that might take. And so shockingly to us, people hurting one another, even displaying power over one another, even sacrificing one another... These in some societies, some ancient cultures, could be seen as good and were more common than we might like to think. To demonstrate some of this, let me give you some examples. From Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 13, the Canaanites, they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Or Plato Talking of children who did not prove themselves worthy, Plato writes that parents would properly properly dispose of them in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. Or Aristotle, as to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. Exposing them, leaving them out to, to die. 
Aristotle thought that defective children should be exposed, discarded at rubbish tips, abandoned on hillsides, thrown down wells, drowned in rivers. It would be immoral, in his view, not to do that. So therefore it's good to do it, as he sees it. Or Plutarch, with full knowledge and understanding, they themselves offered up their own children and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people. Why? To sacrifice them. Or Clitarchus, explaining the practice that was happening in Carthage, there stands in, the midst a bronze, in their midst a bronze statue of Kronos, its hands extended over a bronze brazier, the flames of which engulfed the child. Infanticide was very, very common because of disability, deformity, even based on sex, with newborn females often being rejected. There's ample evidence from literature, as this study uh, in 2013 concluded, there's ample evidence from literature, legal comment, and letters of the ancient Greek practice of exposing unwanted newborn infants. So why did this happen? Why was this just so common? Greatness. Outstanding goodness was equated with power, boasts of military success. Rulers were not great because of their sacrificial service. Now we think of the term ministers today, in terms of government, it's the word servant. But rulers were not great because of their sacrificial service. They were great because of who they sacrificed to get to the place, how they displayed their power, even being considered divine themselves by doing so, by, by becoming great. The ethic of love as we know it, making choices on what is, based on what is most loving to people, especially vulnerable people, that was just not a widespread way of thinking in the ancient world. The writing of the early Christians, one historian, Larry Hurtado, writes that historians simply do not know of any other, other than the Christians, Roman-era religious group in which love played this important role in discourse or behavioural teaching, which tells us about the role of the Christians, but for here we see that there's no other Roman-era group like them. That was just the state of society. The vast majority of cultures throughout history have considered that we're better off without the weak. Compassion's not a virtue, but a vice, an anti-virtue. See, basically, these ancient societies practiced what modern atheist philosophers and even rulers of countries in the 19th century have begun arguing for and even practicing, and into the 20th century too. Now, considering examples like eugenics in, in Nazi Germany. See, the view of some atheist philosophers is that humanity or a group of humans is to be valued only on what they can contribute, functional usefulness, which humans or races of society which ones will be best for society? Which ones will cost the least and contribute the most economically, socially? Which ones will make for the most powerful empire? See, what we know of many ancient societies, of Rome particularly, is an ancient form of modern atheistic philosophy. The logic is that if the world and evolution functions, functions as survival of the fittest, then we should only support the fittest in surviving. Therefore, it's, un, it's justifiable to ignore the weak, to let them go, if you like. That, that's the argument. 
Basically, this is deriving morality and ethics, right and wrong, from biology, moral law from scientific law. And so, for example, the, the atheist Richard Dawkins, biologist, in reply to a Twitter post about an unborn child known to have Down syndrome where the mother asks for advice on what to do, this is his reply. Abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you had the choice. Now, there was major backlash against his view, as there has been against the Australian ethicist Peter Singer, who's promoted similar views. But why the backlash? Why the backlash not just from religious groups, from various angles? The Romans wouldn't have raised any concerns. Something has changed in how we as a society have come to think, to think about people. So I want to jump ahead and think, how would Jesus answer this question? What is goodness? What is goodness? What does it mean to do good? How might Jesus respond to the mother with the baby to be born with Down syndrome? Very early in Jesus' ministry, he went to a synagogue. He opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Israel's prophet who proclaimed judgment, who proclaimed rescue, salvation through a servant, a Messiah-type figure, and Jesus read Luke 14, Luke 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord. This is reading from Jesus reading from Isaiah's scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus identifies himself as the one who proclaims what is good, good news which he declares that will equal freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind. And then what does Jesus go out and do? He does these very things. And so Luke, the biographer of Jesus, writes in the verses to follow, verse 31 to 36, the next section, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Or from verse 38, the bit we had read earlier, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and he healed them. Moments like these are littered right throughout his ministry. And so what motivates Jesus to do these kinds of things? It's not for his own honour, greatness, like the leaders of Rome. It's his compassion. Jesus sees people. He sees them in their need in need of healing, in need of food at times, in need of a saviour all the time, and he does something in response to it. Mark 6. There we read of Jesus having compassion. And that word, literally, come with passion to suffer, with suffering, joining with those who are suffering, suffering himself in the process. Jesus had compassion this gut-wrenching, deep-down feeling. We think of compassion maybe as something of the mind, the emotions. In the ancient world, in, in, in this time, it was thought of as the, from the gut. It's this feeling that you just could not escape. It would hurt, it would make you sick, and you would act. That's compassion. Jesus' heart of compassion motivates these acts of compassion, especially towards those who, in society who the Jewish even even the religious Jewish and the Romans certainly, 
were rejecting. He cared for and healed the sick, but not just the sick, the dying too, and those who grieved death. And so we know the story of Lazarus, Lazarus who, who, who died, and Jesus weeps, he mourns Lazarus' death, but then he brings him back from death. See, for the Greeks, their philosophers taught them that death was an escape from the body, or just a natural next step in the cycle of life. And for most of them in their thinking, it was a final thing. There wasn't more afterwards, and certainly not in the same form. Jesus saw hurting and dying people very, very differently. He flipped the script on the ancient way of, of living and of dying and of responding to death. He served and he gave hope. He saw dignity in people, value in people, and he acted accordingly. He had compassion, deep, gut-wrenching action. And he encouraged his followers to see people the same way. And so we come to Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And we meet this expert in knowing goodness. So the question, what is goodness? This guy thinks he knows the answer. A typical religious expert, typical of the thinking of the powerful, the elite in the day, in the Jewish society. This man wants eternal life. Though he thinks he's actually already got it. See, really, Luke tells us he's come to test Jesus. And he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He thinks eternal life is gained by doing good, doing the law, loving God and loving neighbour, and it seems he thinks he's passed that test. And Jesus says, this man is both right and wrong. Jesus does say, do this and you will live. Do good, do love neighbour, love God, and you will live. Do everything written in the law. He's right, but he's wrong. He cannot fully love God and love neighbour. Which the man's question in response reveals, verse 29, he wants to justify himself. He wants to justify himself, to show off his goodness even. And so he asks, well, who, who then is my neighbour? How can I limit this a little? And Jesus answers with a story, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man, which I think that this man, the, the, the teacher, the, the expert would think of as a Jewish man, he's attacked by robbers on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they strip him, the robbers of his clothes, beat him and, and leave him dead, half dead. And in the verses to follow, Jesus says, well, a priest comes by and he sees the man, crosses to the other side. And then, then a Levite, a helper of, of the priest in the temple system, and he also sees and crosses to the other side. Now, this is a narrow road. They both see. There's no doubting that. But helping is an inconvenience. It's a cost to them. And then says Jesus to this Jewish expert about this probably Jewish man who's there on the ground, verse 33, a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, and so presumably an enemy of the injured man, as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion on him. And so much of it, personally burdensome amounts of it, expensive amounts of it, Jesus emphasises the great cost that this man paid. A cost that had no limit even. Charge me whatever it will cost, he says to the, the owner of the place he takes him. 
Which brings us back to the conversation this Good Samaritan story sits within, the conversation with the expert. Who is the expert's neighbour? Verse 36. Who does he need to love in order to get eternal life? And Jesus asked the man, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. This expert can't even utter the name, the, the ethnicity of the merciful man, the Samaritan. It pains him too much to think of his enemy in a positive light. And he now knows he's not an expert in love. Not love for God, not love for neighbour. And so he just slips out of the story. Jesus has redefined goodness for this very good man. And so we come back to that question, what is goodness according to Jesus? What is goodness? It's extreme and costly compassion to suffer with the other. And so to all who would try and honour God, Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so Jesus' followers, serious followers of Jesus, have sought to do just that. And many have, and we'll see some examples in a moment of them doing it. But before we leave this little story of this expert and, and this good Samaritan, it's worth noting how no one, not even this good expert, can perfectly do what Jesus says. No one perfectly goes and does likewise, do they? Which is why Jesus' own example of compassion stands out so much and why he is so needed by each of us, even to in, order, in order to obtain eternal life. See, the best good Samaritan is really Jesus himself. Not a Samaritan ethnically, though despised like them in so many ways. The central message of Christianity is that Jesus is the one who goes, sees, goes, stoops down and helps at enormous cost to himself, even death on a cross. He helps broken and hurting humanity. And Jesus exemplifies compassion and goodness. That's Jesus' answer to the question, what is goodness? What about his followers? What about his followers and their impact? Have Jesus' followers answered that question? How have they done that? Let me share just a few significant examples, both from the Bible and the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 33 we read here that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And why? They sold what they had. They distributed dollars to anyone who had need. And this established a pattern of compassion in the early church. Later in Acts, we read of the disciples organizing for the care of the widows amongst them. Those in need were to be remembered and to be cared for. In the second century, the early Christian writer Tertullian, he publicly attacked the Romans for the thing we saw earlier, the cruelty of their treatment of unwanted children. He says of them, you expose them to the cold and hunger, to wild beasts, or else you get rid of them by the slower death of drowning. He's calling them out in this passage. He and others fought for the voiceless, for justice, for care and compassion. Or if we think in the area broadly of, of health care, St. Ephraim the Syrian, in Edessa during the plague in the 306 on, is, is his life, so maybe in the mid-300s, he established hospitals 
open to all who were afflicted, and that was not common. Only those who were right at the peak of, of society in terms of dollars and who would be, their healing would mean that they could rejoin the military and therefore aid the power of the empire, they would get medical care, but not all who were afflicted who couldn't afford it. But Ephraim, the Syrian, he set up hospitals for everyone. Or St. Basil the Great, the brother of Gregory, who protested against slavery, who we heard about, he founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the care of lepers who he nursed with his own hands. An example like that of, of Father Damien, who we heard about earlier. Or in Rome, St. Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe. And despite her wealth and position, she herself ventured out into the streets to seek out those who needed care. And so writing about this period in history, the, the uh, author and historian Tom Holland writes of the 4th century Roman Emperor Julian trying to regain support and power, which he felt he was losing. And he writes, How apparent to everyone it is, this is Julian, and how shameful that our own people lack support from us when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, and he's referring to the Christians here, but ours as well. The Christians are supporting the, the Romans in need. And Julian then tried to copy the Christians by establishing Roman health care. But why? He didn't do it out of compassion. He wanted to look good. He wanted to maintain the support of his populace. He felt he was losing them. And so he established hospitals. Tom Holland comments that the roots of Christian, Christian charity ran deep. Generation after generation, Christians held true to this injunction to remember the poor. Christians did not merely inspire in Julian a profound contempt. They filled him with envy as well. And so another historian, David Bentley Hart, notes that in the Middle Ages, just one Christian order, monastic order, the Benedictines founded 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe. Isn't that incredible? The positive impact of Christianity in offering health care especially those who could not access it themselves, is vast and unquestioned by historians. And so it's no surprise that this symbol, the cross, is a symbol of a place of health care, a place where you can find compassion even today. And so throughout the world, there are, where, where Christian mission has occurred, there's generally hospitals. I visited this one in, in Kilimanjaro, right at the bottom of Kilimanjaro the Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Centre, established in Tanzania for those who could not otherwise afford care. It's still going today. Doctors working for very little. Centres caring for people with disabilities. Or we, even in our own city, have schools supporting those who struggle to fit into mainstream education. Christian schools. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who, if you know his work, he's hardly a supporter of Christianity, he argues that Christians have become the champions of pity, the champions of pity, by putting themselves on the side of the inferior, which he basically calls pity a poison. Why? Because of the very reason that Richard Dawkins thinks of it similarly. Nietzsche writes that pity on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of natural selection. 
And yet, despite the various opposition, Christians have pressed on in compassion. Because to Jesus and those who seek to follow him in God's eyes, everyone is valuable, everyone is precious, everyone is fearfully and wonderfully made. We haven't always got compassion right. There's been times where it's been connected with scandals and abuses, particularly when it's been tied up with the state. It's had issues. But overwhelmingly, Christ-inspired compassion has changed the world. It's changed our modern answer to how we define goodness, how we now think of goodness as compassion or synonyms of it. It's changed how governments set policies. It's changed how we think of refugees. It's changed how we in the West think of people with value and dignity. And so for all of that, I think we should consider this Jesus who began this revolution. And I think we should be really thankful. And so let me pray that we might be. Our great God, we do thank and praise you for this compassion revolution where people are seen as important and valued, not just based on what they can do or contribute to society or military might, but on who they are based on who you've made them to be. And we thank you for Jesus, that he was the one of ultimate compassion, who led the way and set the example. Not just an example, who set the way so that we, by his compassion, can have eternal life. And so we're thankful for that. Amen. Thank you.